Hello and welcome to Wellbeing. I'm Dr. Virginia Reid and today to discuss with me autism and a new therapy, transcranial magnetic stimulation for autism, I have John Elder Robeson. John is a well-recognised authority on life with autism and is the Neurodiversity Scholar-in-Residence at the College of William and Mary and a member of the Interagency Autism Coordinating Committee for the US Department of Health and Human Services. John's also a member of the International Society for Autism Research. John, in your younger days, from what I can gather from your brilliant book Switched On, which gives us a little bit of insight into somebody who had a condition that they didn't really have diagnosed till much later in life. You weren't aware of the diagnosis, really, of autism. That's right. Um, Autistic people uh, span the whole spectrum of human intelligence and function, and those of us who have a good ability to speak who grew up in the 1950s and 60s, none of us were diagnosed with autism. Uh, When I was young, the only people diagnosed with autism were people who couldn't speak, like some of my cousins. So I knew I was different as a boy, but I didn't know why. What was the difference? What are the things you noticed? Well, the thing about autism is it's uh, it's a communication thing. So some autistic people, like some of my cousins, didn't understand language or they didn't speak. Um, Others, like me, have really precise language, but we can't read body language, facial expressions. So you could say, that's great. And I couldn't tell if you were sarcastic and angry or you were praising me and you thought it was really nice. And, and, And so both things are really disabling, especially to a young person. It meant that I usually said and did the wrong thing, and other kids ended up laughing at me, uh, mocking me, uh, making fun of me, and that's not a very happy way to grow up. Okay, so you can appreciate that behavior back towards you. In other words, you're sensitive to that. Well, um, when people call you names and, yeah, and, and run away from you, you, you can't miss that, sure. Okay, so that's not part of autism, being sensitive to ridicule. Um, I was probably blind to a lot of criticism and, uh, you know, and uh, comments from other children, but when kids tell you that you're retarded, you're mental, you're stupid... You kind of can't miss that. So whether you're autistic or not, you you hear those kinds of bad words and you internalize them. And the result is that there's a whole generation of autistic people who grew up like me, feeling like we were inferior to everyone else, but not really knowing why. Yes. I think that's the the difficulty, isn't it? Because I think perhaps people didn't perceive how much they were hurting you because your response is not to not to stand up and fight, if you like. It's more to exit the scene. I think that, frankly, that's true of marginalised groups all over the world, whether you're talking about the, um, the Indigenous peoples of Australia or you're talking about religious minorities or you're talking about autistic people who stand apart from the rest of society. All of us tended to grow up made to feel like we were less than than the others. Yes, and your reaction um, 
was perceived to be part of the illness, perhaps, in autism. That's exactly right. We were Mm. thought of as sick or defective, not as different. Yes. And so what did that mean for you in your life path, if you like? Well, one thing it meant is that I turned to machines and technology at an early age um, where uh, many other 13-year-olds would be interested in uh, having a girlfriend, having a good time with friends. I was teaching myself about electronics and, um, and music and how to, how to make amplifiers and special effects and such. And, and ultimately, my autism, which allowed me to concentrate very deeply, um, it was a thing that made me really lonely as a boy, but it was also the thing that set me free as an adult because it helped me to concentrate and focus on music and electronics, and I became a successful engineer with rock and roll bands. Mm. And, and so the, that's the, the double-edged sword of autism for some of us. Um, there are some folks where autism is really just a disability, and there are others where we have a mixture of gift and disability. And in your situation, the gift was really quite significant, wasn't it? Well, it was, um, the gift was, um, yeah, it was significant. I worked for uh, Britannia Row Audio, which was um, a sound company that Pink Floyd had uh, spun off, and um, I helped uh, put together sound systems for a lot of uh, British bands that toured in the world. And um, then I I got to working with uh, Kiss, who actually brought my sound equipment, special effects guitars, and played Australia in the 1970s. And and that was actually the first time that my creations really went out all over the world. And, And I was so proud of that, being a a dropout from school and, you know, being told how I was really nothing, and yet I was a success in music. Yes, that's a fantastic part of the book, and particularly when you relive it later in your treatment, that was really interesting for somebody who had no idea really about what it must be like to be gifted as well as not have been able previously to describe that to other people. You know, one thing that's really hard about autism is we can get stuck on the disability and we can completely lose sight of our humanity and our gifts. Mm. That is in part, would it be fair to say, because autism doesn't give you always the ability to communicate clearly in terms that people can understand? So, for example, did you write before you had your therapy? Yes, I wrote my first book before I had any of this therapy, and Look Me in the Eye um, has been actually pretty popular in in Australia and, in fact, all over the Southwest Pacific. Um, That's the thing. I could communicate um, typing even if I couldn't have a conversation with you face-to-face. A lot of autistic people are like that. We're not disabled in front of a keyboard, but if you have a, try and have a conversation with us, we're disabled then. And, um, and that, again, is, you know, that's the aspect of disability. Yes, so there is an advocacy there, isn't it? For example, in school exams and things, being allowed some people to write, um, to type, as opposed to write or to speak. That's, that's correct, yeah. And, and for somebody who is challenged responding in conversation, 
I think it's really quite unfair and almost mean to force them to do that when they could write clear, comprehensible answers if you just gave them time and and a, a means of writing them out. Mm. I think this is the double-edged sword of labelling, of diagnosing, of putting people in boxes. It has its limitations, but it has also the aspect that when you know what the issues are, you can help to resolve them in a fair sense. Yeah, I think that's true. Yes, I, I think so too. You're listening to Wellbeing. I'm Dr. Virginia Reid, and today we're discussing autism with John Elder Robeson. Look me in the eye. Just describe why you called the book that. I called it that because all my life people said things like, a man looks a man in the eye. Look at me when I'm talking to you. Look at me, boy. I mean, every young boy who is autistic and grew up probably heard some variation of that when uh, adults would uh, ask us to look at them and pay attention and, and we would look up and then we'd look down again and we'd think we'd done what was asked of us. But of course we hadn't. And, and, and I was forever getting in trouble because I didn't look at people when I talked to them, even though I thought I did. Okay. So that's it. You're perceiving that you are looking somebody in the eye, but in fact you're not. Is that what's happening there? Well, you know, even for you to say it like that, you say, I thought I was looking somebody in the eye, but in fact I was not. I think it's probably fair to say, I thought I was looking someone in the eye, and they thought that I was not. Uh, Neither one of us is right or wrong, right? It's just a difference of opinion. I thought that I was doing the thing that was wanted, but but I didn't. And how could I know that I was doing that? How could one communicate that with you? Because I think in the culture of people that don't have autism, let's put it that way, it engenders distrust when people don't look you in the eye. But from the culture of people with autism, they don't have that same belief that if somebody doesn't look you in the eye, then they're distrustful. Is that how it works? That is how it works. And if you ask how I learned about it, Yes. I actually learned about it from an Australian doctor, Tony Atwood. Um, in the 1990s, Dr. Atwood wrote a book called Asperger Syndrome. And the book was published in America also. And uh, a therapist that I had gotten to know, he came to my office one day with that book and he said, you know, there's this new condition they're talking about in the mental health world called Asperger syndrome, and you could be the poster boy for it. And I, <laughs> at first I was shocked at yes. that, but I looked in the book, in Dr. Atwood's book, and everything that I had trouble with was like right there. For example, Dr. Atwood wrote about how people with Asperger's, which is a form of autism, have difficulty looking people in the eye, or we think we're looking people in the eye and they say we're not. So I I read those descriptions of Asperger and autism behavior, and every one of them was me. And for the first time in my life, I had a non-judgmental explanation for how why I'm this way. And how did that make you feel? It, It made me feel very sad at first, because They also said, well, there's no cure for autism. You're always going to be that way. And so I couldn't help but think, well, here's here's the reason why I can't connect with other people. Here's the reason I failed at all these things. And I'm always going to be this way. There's nothing I can do about it. But then 
I guess I got a sense of hope. I thought, well, if I know that I'm acting in this different way, I can teach myself to act differently. And, and when I tried doing that, my ability to relate to other people improved tremendously. And, and so that was when I thought knowledge made my life better. And I wanted to share that knowledge with other young people who were growing up. And that was what led me to write Look Me in the Eye. Okay. That helps me to understand a bit better why you've gone on this particular path. I'm really in that sense like a like a preacher who took a, who had a calling in midlife. I wanted to share the idea that you can have a good life and being autistic can help you as well as hurt you. Yes, it was like an enlightenment really. Yeah. Yeah. And then you went on to want to help others with that knowledge. So your ability to knuckle down and work really hard, which you would have to do at that point in time to willfully educate yourself to communicate, look people in the eye, etc. That ability, where did that come from? Did you have very hardworking, studious sort of parents or what was your role model there? I think my role model was, well, it's not a role model, but I was driven by fear. Um, when I came of age, um, when I was a teenager, it was the early 1970s. And in the United States, um, a teenage boy who was not physically crippled um, was not eligible for any kind of social service supports. It was go to work, uh, join the army, or starve. And um, and I did not want to starve. I did not want to be on the street. And I, I just felt like I had no choice. I had to go out and find a way to make a living. And, and I thought that I could do that by being an engineer for musical groups. And that was what pushed me in that direction, really just fear of starvation. Mm, and then you, your understanding that you could willfully teach yourself communication with others, for example, looking them in well, the eye. Well, that didn't happen until I was... That was much later. That was right. when I was 40 years old. Um, that, that book of Dr. Atwood's wasn't written until the mid-1990s. Right. So I was, I was well into adulthood by the time I learned that. I had to go out and make my way as a young adult with no knowledge of autism. I only knew that I was less than other people, as, as, or at least that's how they had made me feel. But in fact, that fear of starvation, if you like, made you it's a powerful motivator it is so you actually in your 19 when you were in your 40s though had to then turn around and alter your behavior yes that's right yeah and that to me is is not normal you know the jesuits say give me a child until he is 5 and he is mine but at the age of 40 to alter behavior is no small thing I agree it's no small thing. I absolutely agree. <laughs> You've lived through it. So was that just sheer will of force? I think it was that uh, I've always had a powerful desire to be able to connect with other people and relate to others. And if changing my behavior could help me do that, I, I wanted to try. And, um, and, and it worked to a significant degree. And... Um, and indeed, it connected me with people all over the world through the writing of my first book. 
Absolutely. And is that how you came to be introduced to the people that were doing the study on transcranial? Transcranial magnetic stimulation. Yes. That, that is exactly right. After Look Me in the Eye was published, um, people began inviting me to speak at different uh, sorts of events. And um, folks like you invited me to go on the radio and talk about what was happening. And, and that brought me to the attention of scientists, researchers, teachers. And one of these uh, people came to me at a talk and said, we're doing this study where we hope to use high-powered magnetic fields to help autistic people see emotional cues in other people. And could we leave some flyers and see if any of the people at your talk are interested in taking part? And I heard that, and I thought, well, that's the thing that's disabled in me all my life. I'd like to try that. And, and they hadn't come to, to recruit me. They had just come because they thought there were autistic people at my talk. But I thought, I want to do this. And where were they from? That's the important sort of thing, I think. Well, that's kind of funny. They, the person uh, looked like a grad student, and she was gave me a business card for um, this institution called Beth Israel Medical Center, and I didn't have any idea what that was. And so I got home that night, and I looked it up online, and I saw it was a teaching hospital of Harvard Medical School. and One of the very prestigious ones, yes. Yeah, he was a dean at Harvard, and, you know, and he was one of the top neuroscientists in the world, and I was very embarrassed. Then. <laughs> well, you needn't be embarrassed. I think it's a huge compliment, and I disagree with you that they didn't know exactly what they were doing. But anyway, that's the reason. And I'm talking to you, so let's <laughs> let's be grateful. So, I mean, I still think it's wonderfully courageous of you to sort of put your hand up and say, "Well, I'd like to try that," because at that stage, transcranial magnetic stimulation was really in its infancy, wasn't it? Uh, yes, it was. Um, in the years since I have since I took part in the study, um, TMS has been deployed across the United States, Australia, New Zealand, the UK, as a, a treatment for depression. It's used to uh, mitigate pain and uh, migraine. It's used in stroke recovery, and it's being explored in autism and a number of other things. Um, but uh, you're absolutely right that when I took part, um, I was a guinea pig for something that n nobody really knew what would happen. No, and I think that just dawned on you, didn't it, as you entered into the uh, initial assessment of the study? I, I guess I just had so much hope or so much desire to make myself better. It's, it's like, imagine, if you will, that you, you had something that you felt crippled you all your life, and everyone said to you, well, that's how you're going to be. There's nothing you can do about it, and you just try and accept it. But then all of a sudden, somebody comes along and says, hey, we've got something that could fix that. You want to try it? And that's what that's how I felt. I felt like I got to try this. Absolutely. I can easily understand that from your book. It's beautifully communicated. So then you entered into that trial and with some trepidation, I do add. And what were the effects of the initial sessions? Well, the first session had a totally unexpected effect, and that was that it turned on my ability to 
see and feel emotion in in music and and it was funny because they told me that the way this would work is they would show me some figures on a TV screen and I would be pushing buttons to say if they were happy or sad what I was seeing then they would stimulate me in the lab and they would then they would show me another bunch of figures on the screen and they would compare my scores before and my scores after and that would tell if the if the experiment changed me and and I did that and I thought oh nothing's different and I got in my car to go home and I turned on the music and and it wasn't like I was listening to a car radio it was like almost an out of body experience as if I had been transported back into the nightclub where the music was recorded 20 years before and it was just overwhelming the, the the power of the music that I was listening to, and and that was a, a totally unexpected result. Nobody thought that would happen, and and it was I, I think a symbol of uh, it was it was indicative of what was to come as I continued in the study. Yes, so that initially led you to have a very good experience and to continue to have the therapy. Well, it was a powerful experience. I mean, it didn't necessarily make me better. I couldn't, um, I couldn't look at you and read your emotions, um, but just the fact that I had these feelings from music, it was really, really powerful. And you know what's interesting is at the time that that happened, I thought, am I going crazy? Am I just imagining this? But if you go online now, and you look at the internet forums where people talk about getting TMS for depression because there's you know by millions of people getting TMS around the world, you actually will see people talking about uh, vivid musical hallucinations now as a as a side effect of their own TMS. So it's funny that I wrote about it and I was one of the first to experience it, but other people are kind of sharing in that experience now in the course of depression treatment. And I think that's kind of neat. Yeah, definitely. You must feel a little bit like um, one of the, this is one of the new frontiers. I, yeah, I think so. Yeah. I, I, and it's, and I feel of course validated by those experiences. Um, like I'm not crazy after all. It, it was a really, it was a powerful, powerful thing. Yes. And I mean, the other thing is that when you go into new territory where other people haven't been before, it's always scary, I suppose. I think it is. And when you have a really powerful experience, it's almost like an out-of-body experience. Yeah, I mean, Um, some people would be scared off by that, but you weren't. You continued. Well, you ask yourself, is this real or am I crazy? Is this just my wild imagination or did this really happen? Yes. I mean, from my viewpoint, I would be worried that it would continue to happen and you'd get caught in it and you wouldn't be able to get back to normal functioning. So there's always that fear, isn't there, that you'll end up completely crazy, like permanently locked into crazy. I had that worry too. I thought, yeah, what is going to happen to me now? And so it's funny. At first, I went into the study thinking, wouldn't it be remarkable if these doctors really could change that thing about me. But then I thought, well, you know, what is really the meaning of this? And, and, you know, as the study progressed and I began to be able to see emotion in other people, 
I was actually overwhelmed and devastated by that. And it was totally opposite of what I thought would happen. I, I thought, well, it would be really cool if I could read the other people's feelings and I would see all this happiness and sweetness and love and light. <laughs> and that wasn't what I saw. What I saw was jealousy and anger and worry and, and scaredness. And, you know, and, and I was just devastated by all of these emotions. Negative emotions, right. So you got both positive and negative and you hadn't realized that any of them, ex or you didn't have the, um, I suppose, the tools to deal with any of them because you hadn't had them from early childhood. I, I think that's true. I think other people um, may have had the natural ability to read those uh, feelings, but they've had a whole lifetime of experience doing it. And so for me, to have that ability just switched on one day, um, it, it absolutely, it's overwhelming. Yes, yes. So to manage those, yeah, because we learn, I suppose, without autism, you learn to adapt to that world. Yeah, and nobody, nobody expected anything like that. No, because it's brand new. And so as you've read and continued your experience, your personal experience, but also you're very well connected now to the world of the um, utilisation of the therapy and its effects on others, has it been successful as a therapy, do you feel? I think that there are scientists testing the use of TMS to um, alter a number of things in autism. They are looking at using TMS to help executive function, organization. They're using it, obviously, in depression and anxiety. They're looking at using it in emotional connectedness, which is what the study I was part of was involved in. And they're looking to use TMS to help people form language, people who have trouble speaking. So there are studies going on using TMS in a lot of different ways. And I think, yes, TMS is going to emerge as a very powerful tool for neurologists to treat many, many conditions. And autism is one of them. And, and I think that the question we have to ask then is how do people decide who's going to be treated. Um, for me, I was an adult who could, who could say, yes, I want to volunteer for this study and I want to hope that I can be better. But what about a child who's put into treatment by parents? Um, is, is that the right thing to do? Or should TMS be a therapy that one must be able to be a consenting adult to receive. And, and you know, there's two sides to that because some doctors will say, well, if we could head off disability in childhood, it would make for um, a healthier adult. But then you could also say, well, if you treat somebody as a child, you never know what kind of adult they might be. And maybe you're crushing what would be brilliant creativity that hasn't come to light yet. But has it altered your creativity, do you feel? I think the way it's altered me that's really interesting is if you read about the things I did and look me in the eye, they were all solitary accomplishments. I designed electronic circuits by myself. I fixed cars by myself. I wrote a book by myself. And now if you look at what I do, 
I work in groups. I speak to groups of people. I teach at a college on neurodiversity and autism. I serve on government committees to help formulate plans for autism research for our government. So today, I'm able to work in group environments where all my life I failed before. And I think that's a remarkable transformation. Oh, absolutely. But it's also what happens, I find, with people who are experts in their field in very many fields. In other words, they have that amazing ability to focus and concentrate in a specific area without distraction, which, you know, autism would be pretty handy in that circumstance. But they also then, once they've honed up in their field, are able to gift that to other people because they're so expert in their field and you certainly are one of the few people I would say that has both been able to experience the illness, the cure and help others. But that long ago doctors used to do that and even we have a Nobel Prize winner who gave himself H. pylori uh, in order to... to um, you know, expound that as a theory of the causes of uh, gastroesophagitis, etc., which is a whole other field. But that was a common thing that doctors used to do, give themselves the illness, cure themselves of the illness, and then pass it on to others. So in a way, you're the first lay person that I've known, if you, if you don't mind me calling you that, the first lay person that I know that has done that. <laughs> Uh, so that, but I think that gives you authenticity and an ability to describe it to other people in a way that nobody else could really. Well, it's it's a powerful thing, and and I think that as much as it meant for me in autism, as I am affected by it, I think that the TMS, the brain stimulation technology, has a great power to transform the lives of millions of people with depression, anxiety. Um, It's being researched in Parkinson's and Alzheimer's and dementia. Um, So it has so many potential applications beyond my experiences in autism. And, And I think that that's a word that we want to get out. But I think we also... We want people to understand that we're on the cusp of being able to rewire our brains, and and that's a profound ethical thing. How should we decide who gets rewired? And and certainly we don't want to rewire people against their will. But I think there's a, a valid question. Should we try and change a young person in hopes of heading off disability in the future? And boy, that's a hard question to answer. It certainly is. It was easier for you in a way in that because of your background, you trusted the therapy, you could understand it somewhat. Is that true to say? I I, I think that's, yeah, that is true. Many people um, listened to the description of TMS and they said, zap your brain, magnetize your brain, you're crazy. But, you know, I worked as an electrical engineer with high-powered electromagnets and high-powered systems like that. And I thought, well, this is no different than the power supplies that I designed to drive flash lamp lasers or the amplifiers that we use to drive the electromagnets that make up the, the loudspeakers and huge sound systems. So I thought, I know about this technology and I'm not scared of it, so I shouldn't be scared of it to change my brain. And did that help you to to understand, though, the levels that they were using and make sure that they, for example, weren't going to blow your amplifier? Because I guess most people have had that experience. Well, I think that um, 
blow the amplifier, that analogy, I think that relates to ECT, electroconvulsive therapy, and that's a, t- a therapy where they actually hook electrical wires to your head and blast electricity through your skull. And, and absolutely, that burns out circuits in your brain and f- causes new circuits to form. Um, but TMS is a much gentler process. TMS is delivering a pulse of electromagnetism to your head. And, and I think that anyone who has been in an MRI machine for medical imaging knows that the machine is noisy, but the, mach- the process is not scary. When you are inside an MRI machine and you are in the midst of these powerful magnetic fields, you don't feel anything. So I, I always knew that magnetic stimulation of my brain was inherently gentler and safer than ECT. And I never worried about having my brain burned out, if you will, by the therapy. But, but I do agree with you that lay people who didn't know about the technology would have that fear. And subsequently, they've not shown any negative effects from that? Uh, there can be negative effects. You can have, you could have seizures from brain stimulation. But interestingly, one of the things that they're testing right now, it's actually um, with our American FDA for therapeutic approval, is the use of TMS to suppress seizures and epilepsy. So even as a seizure could be a side effect of stimulation, the therapy has the potential to help people with epilepsy. So there can, and and the other thing, when you ask, could there be negative effects? I, I think that the effects that I experienced that I describe in my switched on book, frankly, it turned my world upside down and shook it on the ground. Um, for me to see into other people, I thought, well, that's great. I'll be, I'll be smarter, you know? Yeah. And, 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 and maybe I am smarter today, but my marriage fell apart. I, I saw so many negative things. I was driven to the edge of suicide. My, my life fell apart and then it got back together. So I have seen a wild ride of good stuff and bad stuff and and to say that it's all good for me that's that's not true at all and that's not what my book says at all it was a, a rocky ride yeah that's why i'd really encourage people to read the book if they're considering it because things change is what you're saying and that would be an inevitable consequence because you changed Right. It's like that old, you know, advice, you know, be careful what you wish for because it might come true. And I think that was the case for me. I, I thought it would be like really simple, seeing emotions. You would just be better. And boy, that wasn't true at all. Yes, your life would be better. Yes. And, and it was not that way. Yes, absolutely. Well, at the end of the day, autistic people are people. <laughs> um, yes, that is, that is true, yeah. We, we all have the same, uh, if you like, uh, well, yes, emotions, but the ability to read or react to emotions is, is different for each and every one of us. Absolutely. Yeah. John, it's been an absolutely fantastic conversation. I believe that you're visiting Australia this year. Yes, that's correct. I'll be in Australia the uh, first week in September and I will be in um 
Sydney, uh, Melbourne, Brisbane, and uh, Adelaide, and I'll have uh, half a dozen uh, talks between those four cities. And how would people get in touch with someone who knows the arrangements for those talks? Uh, They'll be on my schedule website, which is johnelderrobeson.blogspot.com. They can also find me on Facebook at Facebook slash John Elder Robeson. And I am at John Robeson on Twitter, J-O-H-N-R-O-B-I-S-O-N. I would thoroughly recommend Switched On by John Elder Robeson. It's a wonderful read. I really uh, looked forward every night to, to, to getting into bed and reading it, which is not something I always say about nonfiction. Well, thank, thank you for having me with you, and I'm glad that you enjoyed my story. I think that's really neat. Thank you so much, John. It's been a wonderful discussion, and I look forward to hearing more from you. Well, thank you. It's a really, it's a kind of a cool thing and an honour to do it and to, to be able to make friends all over the world and meet people. I, I never dreamed such a thing would happen to me. John Elder Robeson the Neurodiversity Scholar-in-Residence at the College of William and Mary and a member of the Interagency Autism Coordinating Committee for the US Department of Health and Human Services. John's also a member of the International Society for Autism Research. John will be speaking in Australia in September in Sydney, Adelaide, Melbourne and Brisbane. And for anybody wanting information about that or his book or or John himself, please go to www.johnelderrobison, and I'll spell that, J-O-H-N-E-L-D-E-R-R-O-B-I-S-O-N dot blogspot. Dot com dot au. I'm Dr Virginia Reid and all of us here at Wellbeing would like to say we wish you well.